Well, good morning. My name is Tim Cole, and I get to uh, speak for Roger today. Apparently, he is on a cruise today, and uh, for his, is it the 10th anniversary for them? Is that right? Does anybody know? 10th anniversary? That's a pretty good deal. Uh, I, my, um, my relationship with Roger goes back several years when he was uh, a young pastor, and we started talking about him planting a church. Uh, and uh, so I've been able to be involved with uh, him through that process. I work for Waypoint Church Partners, and uh, this church is a partner with Waypoint. We've got about 120 churches in the Mid-Atlantic region that partner together to plant even more new churches. And so we've got a map right here uh, that shows a lot of the, the churches that we've planted over the last couple decades, including Restore. And uh, we've planted three churches in the last year. And when I say we, I mean we planted three churches because as a partner, you're helping us to do that. Uh, we helped uh, financially invest in this new church when it started a couple years ago, and uh, I got to be involved in Roger's uh, training cohort that he did for a year before he launched, and uh, so uh, he was fairly coachable uh, during that time, and actually we were really proud of what Roger's doing here uh, through this church. And uh, the three churches that we started this year uh, are in South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. The one in South Carolina, Kinetic Church, meets at a, a community center. The one in, in uh, Virginia is called Jacob's Well Church, and it meets in an elementary school just about like this one. And then the one in Boone, North Carolina, Mountainside Church, uh, meets in a bar of all places. They started in a movie theater, uh, which some of you know what that looks like. And then, uh, and then they transitioned into a bar. They just switched to, after Easter, went to two services and a bar. They can sit about 75 people in there, and, and so they've gone to two services, and it's an interesting place. And so we've got churches that are meeting in uh, movie theaters and uh, schools and bars and YMCAs and any, any, even uh, firehouses where they pull the fire, fire trucks out and pull the doors down. They've got a big room for church. Uh, you can do church just about anywhere if you've got a big room, and so it works out really well. So we're glad that you partner with us to help start new churches like this one. One thing that we're really proud of uh, is um, that it's not just starting new churches that kind of reach churched people, that we're not just shuffling the sheep or shifting the saints, if you know what I mean, but we're reaching new people uh, f uh, to make faith decisions. And one metric that we have for that is the churches that are on this map here over the last two years alone have celebrated more than a thousand baptisms. There you go. If you're going to clap for anything today... Uh, if you're going to clap for anything, that's something, and it's actually more than 1,100 baptisms uh, that have been celebrated by the churches on the map, including the 60-plus baptisms from Restore Church uh, as well, which is something that you can be proud of. And so you need to know that you're part of a church that isn't just about itself, but one of the things that you do is help start great new churches like this one all over the Mid-Atlantic region. That's really cool. We've started, my wife and I, who will be here second hour, uh, started two churches on this map, one in Virginia Beach called Forefront Church, and it was right across the street, basically from Oceana, Oceana Naval Station, and so our church was all military. And so this kind of like feels at home being here in Jacksonville, uh, except it's Navy, which for a lot of Marines is like a four-letter word. Uh, but... Um, but because uh, we'll understand that. Then we moved to Richmond and we started Velocity Church and it started, both of those started in a movie theater. And so uh, kind of know my kids don't know anything but Portable Church. They're adults now uh, and uh, they don't know anything about setting up, tearing down. Uh, and when we go to a church building, they think it's a really odd thing. Uh, what's, what's this, you know? And so we feel right at home uh, right here at Restore. So, uh, so we, we want to thank you for partnering with us at Restore. We're really proud of what's going on here. Uh, Roger uh, texted me several weeks ago saying, he's going to go on this cruise, and uh, could I fill in for him preaching? I said, sure, and uh, I get to travel to a different church every Sunday, and so I've got like three good sermons, and, uh, and it's kind of a luxury that I have, uh, but he said, well, no, we want you to stay in the series that we're in, 
And I was like, oh, shucks, now I've got to write another sermon. So, uh, so we are going to be in this series today, and, uh, and we're going to walk through a text that I think is just absolutely fascinating and, and actually kind of hilarious when you read it the right way. Uh, but before that, I want to kind of ask, what, what's your favorite, did you have a favorite childhood book? Like it was your go-to book to pull off the shelf in your, in, in your room when you were a kid. Was there a, was there a book that was like your favorite book? I don't know if anybody can think of that. Uh, my son, uh, we've got a 12-year-old son. He'll be here second hour. His favorite is Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, he's, he's got all five collections of Calvin and Hobbes, and he'll read those late at night. Uh, and he'll think we're, we can't hear him turn the pages in his room, uh, but he's got like a flashlight on. He's reading Calvin. He's read them 8,000 times, but he keeps reading them. And then we tell him, Timmy, go to bed. And so he'll th- throw it underneath his bed. He doesn't know that we know his books are under his bed. But Calvin and Hobbes is his thing. Do you guys, did you have a thing when you were a kid? I've got a video uh, that, that we did kind of about this from my last church, Velocity Church in, in Richmond, that'll kind of describe what one of my favorite books was as a kid. If we can drive that. There we go. All right, it was a kid's chair, all right? So uh, don't talk about... uh and so, uh, did you have a favorite book? That was my, that was my favorite book. And, uh, so, and so the corollary question that I'm curious is, do you have a favorite book of the Bible? Because uh, I think you ought to. Uh, most people think of the Bible as a book, but the Bible really isn't a book. It's a collection of 66 books. And there are different types and eras written by different kind of guys. And, uh, and I'm curious, do you have a favorite book of the Bible? There's, there's like 18 books that are primarily uh, prophecy, which are kind of confusing to me a little bit. There's uh, five books that are primarily poetry, you know, because I'm not a poetry guy, so that's not my favorite kind. There's some that are apocalyptic. There are some that are just kind of written letters from one guy to the next or from one person to a church. There's all kind of, and so uh, my favorite book, about, I think you ought to have one. And actually, John, that you all are in right now, is, is one of my favorites. There's four biographies of the life of Jesus. I, l- I like to read biographies, number one, and, uh, and uh, there, there are, um, I'm actually reading a biography right now on Robert E. Lee. I don't know if you're 
Uh, we live up in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia and right near his home, one of the greatest military commanders that we've ever had uh, in our country's history. So I'm re- I like to read biographies, and there's four biographies of the life of Jesus, and I like the, uh, the Gospel of John the best, uh, and because it's different than the other three. The other three all sound kind of the same, but John, the Gospel of John, when it reads differently when you read it, and primarily because we know that uh, Scripture kind of alludes to the fact that John was Jesus' best friend. And so the way he looks at uh, the story of Jesus that he relates to us, there's often these phrases uh, peppered throughout the story where he says, Jesus did this, and the reason he did that is because he knew Jesus was thinking this, or because Jesus thought that, or because Jesus knew about this. And so he gives us kind of these back uh, back scene insights into Jesus because he was so close to him, he kind of knew what was going on better than these other guys that wrote the other biographies. And so I like the Gospel of John as one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I think you ought to have one if you don't have one. And this is a good one. Uh, often if someone is brand new to the faith and uh, they want to know about Jesus, I will tell them, you need to read the, the biography of Jesus written by his friend John. And so it's a great starting point to understand who Jesus was and what he's like. And so we're in John chapter 9 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you may want to open that up. If you've got it on your phone, go ahead and open that up. If you would like a Bible to physically to read old school, we've got Bibles in the back here that volunteers are handing out. You can raise your hand, and, uh, and they, will, um, they will give you a Bible to read. And we are going to walk through kind of a big section of John chapter 9, and then uh, just, just uh, kind of gather two or three spiritual lessons that I think we can take from this passage. But I think this is hilarious uh, when it gets down to the end. John chapter 9, all right, verse 1, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned, his man, uh, the man or his parents, so that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And uh, so then we can move down to verse 6. Uh, After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, Jesus said, wash in the pool of Siloam, uh, which is the word means sent in their language. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. So he's an adult man, never been able to see. He's, Jesus comes up to him, and I just think it's, number one, it's interesting. We think of Jesus walking around kind of pristine. You know, I kinda, most people think he kind of walked around kind of like with Pope clothes on, you know, maybe even with the, the Dorito hat, you know, and he walked around real formal-like all over the place. Now, Jesus was a carpenter, worked with his hands, and I think it's hilarious that in this story, actually in most of the stories of the healings of Jesus, he would physically touch the people which I think is fascinating. He certainly had the ability to heal people from a distance, but Jesus would almost always put his hands on people that he healed. And in this one, he spits on the ground, makes some mud with the spit, not just water, but with his spit, puts it on the guy's eyes, and then he he says, go wash it off, and when he comes back, the guy's able to see. And so... um, So that's kind of the setting for the story. And so the guy goes home for the first time being able to see, and his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't that the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was, but others said, no, he only looks like him, which I think is kind of funny. You know, they're kind of, isn't that old Billy that used to be blind? No, that's not Billy, can't be. No, I think it really is. And so there's this debate going on in his neighborhood is it this Billy or is it just the dude that used to, that looks like Billy that used to be blind? But of course he can see, so it can't be him. 
And, and so, uh, but Billy says uh, himself, he insisted, I am the man. So he's like, no, th- that is me. I, I used to be blind. I'm the one. Uh, that, that's me. And so uh, they asked, well, how then were your eyes opened? And he replied, the man that they called Jesus made some mud, put it on his eyes. He left out the spit part in his story. I don't know why. There must have been like ladies present and he didn't want to, buy, he didn't want to you know, offend the ladies. But he just said he made some mud. If it had been all guys, he just said he made some mud with some saliva. Uh, he said, he made some mud, put it on my eyes. And he told me to go uh, to Siloam and wash. And I went and washed. And then I could see. And they asked him, where is this man? And he says, I don't know which is kind of the end of the, the beginning part of the story. What I think is interesting, it's one of those reasons why when you read the biographies of the life of Jesus, uh, they don't read like a story that, that uh, is made up because the stories aren't clean and proper. And there's a lot of people who don't want to believe the account and the story of Jesus as a real person, and they dismiss the gospel writings as the story of Jesus as it actually occurred 2,000 years ago. But when you read the story, of, there's a lot of things that if you're going to make up a story about a Savior, this is not the way you would write it. And this is one of those passages, because if you're writing a story about Jesus healing a guy born blind, and they ask, well, where is he? And the, the end of the story is the guy says, I don't know. That's the end of the story. And if I'm going to write a story, uh, you know, uh, make up a story about a Savior and, you know, God becomes flesh, the end of the story is going to sound a whole lot better than, I don't know. And that's the end of the story right here, at least this part of it. And, uh, and so to me, it's just fascinating that I would not write it that way unless it were the actual account of what happened. Well, then we move on to the second kind of part of the story is the, the, what happened coming out of that. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the, time, of the time. And the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. And this is where if you're making the made-for-TV movie, there's the eerie music, dun-dun-dun, you know, because you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. And they would, the Pharisees were so lost in all the do's and don'ts of religion that they decided that, that even doing a miracle was work. And so you weren't allowed to do work on the Sabbath, and so you weren't allowed to heal on the Sabbath because that would be classified as work. And so they're going to get all honked off at Jesus for working on the Sabbath and not excited about the fact that, he just healed the dude that had been blind his whole life, and he healed him, and they got completely lost in all the do's and don'ts of religion. And there's a lot of people and a lot of churches that get lost in the do's and don'ts, and they don't see the big picture of God's activity in our lives. And that's one of the points that we're, that we're not going to make in this story, but I just think it's interesting that, that that's part of the, this story. And so the Pharisees asked him, Uh, how he had received his sight, and he recounts again this very simple story. He says, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided, even among themselves, whether Jesus was legit or not. And so they turned again to the blind man, and they said, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened, and the man replied, he's a prophet which is about all he could figure out that Jesus was. And, uh, but they still did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight, and so they sent for the man's parents. And so I think that, that we don't know how old he was, but I think that uh, he must have been 19, 20 years old uh, because of what we're going to see in the text here. But So he's not an old guy. He's not uh, a, 
he's not a youngster. He's somewhere in the middle. And some of it we can tell because of the way the parents act, but some of it I think because of the way he acts, he kind of acts like a 19-year-old as we read in the rest of the story. So they, they get to the parents, and um, they, they, they uh, get to the parents. They say, is this your son? Is, is this the one you say was born blind? Uh, how is it that now he can see? And so the parents say, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. Speak for himself. So he's old enough that they're saying, don't ask us, ask him. Now the reason for that, and this is one of the things that like John likes to do is give these little, these little tidbits for us. He says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the one sent by God, would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And uh, so, um, so, they said, so a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. They said, give glory to God, tell the truth, we know this man is a sinner. And so he replies, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Sounds like an old song that you may have grown up with if you grew up in church. I once was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, uh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Uh, do you wanna, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And so we read this text a lot, and we just kind of read through it. I think that's hilarious. So here's all the religious leaders, and he's getting snarky with them. He's like, so what do you want to ask me again for? You guys want to become his disciples too? You know, and so they're about ready to slap him, literally, uh, when they get to this point. And uh, they hurled insults at him is actually what the next verse says. Uh, and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. Uh, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And then the man answers, like a 19-year-old, well, isn't that remarkable? You don't know where he comes for, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So here's this 19-year-old teaching the religious people a spiritual lesson, trying to figure out who this guy Jesus was. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. So here's this account that I think is really fascinating in the story of the life of Jesus, and it's the passage that we were, uh, that I was assigned by Roger that you guys are going through this study uh, called clickbait, uh, for the, that when you read the Gospel of John, you think one thing, and then you read the story, and it's actually something a little bit different, kind of like when you click on things uh, on the internet, and it's not exactly what you thought you were clicking on. And in this story, I think there's a, there's a ton of spiritual lessons we could take from this passage. And I just want to highlight two or three of them here this morning. We don't have, um, we don't have AC this morning, uh, which I've been in a school before uh, as uh, one of our churches met for a summer in a high school, and we had no AC the whole summer. So this feels right at home. Uh, at least you're here first hour. So, um, so I might have fewer points second hour. Uh, so the first, the first point I want to make is the, from these first three verses, which the first three verses are kind of sticky because it gets into all kind of theology. That is really difficult theology. And so when Roger told me, uh, texted me, could I preach uh, for him this week, I looked at John 9. I'm like, great. I know why Roger went out of town because he didn't want to deal with the first three verses of John chapter 9 because it's this passage that if you go back and read the first three verses, (coughs) 
the, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, the blind man or his parents, uh, that he was born blind? That's a loaded question, isn't it? And there's theologians that, theologians that try and figure out that whole kind of thing. But Jesus kind of reroutes the question. And, and I think the, the lesson that we can learn from this, the simple lesson that we can learn from this, is that at this church, it's okay to not be okay. At this church, it's, it's okay there, that all of us have stuff in our lives. We all have baggage or brokenness or whatever, just like this blind man that Jesus came up to. And a lot of people want to figure out, so what happened in your life to get you there? And Jesus said, no, it's not about that. It's what God, how God's going to be glorified through that person's life. It's okay to not be okay. And, and this church and all the churches that you help us to start kind of have that feel to it that when you come through the doors, it's okay to not be okay. And not all churches are like that. Actually, most churches kind of feel like you're only okay if you're okay. Do you know what I mean? And I used to pastor at a church like that. Before we moved to uh, Virginia 20-plus years ago, I was pastoring a church in Michigan, and it was one of those kind of churches where you had to look okay and act okay to pretend that you were okay so that everybody think you were okay. You know what I mean? You had to wear, the ladies had to wear the right purse, and you had to have the right, right car, live in the right neighborhood, and your kids had to look the right way, and because everybody was just coming to church for an hour pretending that everything was okay. And there's, and. What happens in those churches is that when you're really not okay, you figure out this church is not a place for me, that I'm not welcome here. And when we were at that church in Michigan, uh, we knew that we were going to be moving to Virginia Beach to plant uh, Forefront Church, and we were going to try and really be a church that, that was for people that were far from God. And, where, and a church that it wasn't going to be okay to not be okay. And so I tried to uh, hang out with as many people in my church uh, that were kind of in, in, that, in that world, but there weren't very many of them. And so the, one of the pers- people that I got, really got to know was the gal that did my hair at the mall, uh, and her name was Michelle. And this was 25 years ago, and Michelle uh, self-admittedly would say that she had lived a rough childhood, a rough life. And uh, she had uh, a whole sleeve of uh, tattoos before tattoos were a thing, you know, and uh, this, because I'm that old, and so, um, so she knew that I was a pastor, and so for a long time, uh, she was kind of reserved with me, but after a while, she gained my trust, and we started talking about spiritual things, and her opinion about spiritual things, and, and churches, and Christians, and her, her doubts about faith, and God, and all that, and so we, I really look forward to my conversation every month with her, uh, to hear what a person who had really never been involved in church, never come to faith, what her perspective on faith was all about, and of course, I invited her to come to my church, but I did that with uh, a little bit of hesitation because I felt like if she came to my church, she might not feel like she was welcome there. And so, uh, so thankfully she said to me, well, you know, I'm out with my friends late on Saturday night, almost every Saturday night, so I probably will never come to your church. And I went, Whew, thank goodness, you know. And so, um, so but one s- uh, s- Sunday on a Sunday night in the summertime, I remember very clearly, I was back by the soundboard at the back of the church, and the worship was going on, and about 10 minutes into the service, Michelle kind of snuck into the back door and sat right in the back row, very quietly, and I was shocked that she would show up. It was a Sunday night, uh, which was better for her, and, uh, and I remember very clearly what happened, because it just, it just absolutely reinforced my fear that our church kind of gave this opinion that we're not a church that's for people that are not okay, it's only for people that are okay. And I remember that because about halfway up through the service, an elder from our church got up to give the little meditation before we would take communion. And 
and I remember exactly what he said, and this has been like 25 years ago, because he didn't talk about much about Jesus dying on the cross or what the elements of communion were all about. What he talked about was that it wasn't his week to give the meditation, that the elder that was supposed to do it was out on vacation because it's summertime, and so he's doing it last minute, and he apologized that he was so embarrassed to be up on stage without a coat and a tie on. And he went on and on and on about his his appearance, uh, about what the, or what the right clothes to wear at church. And I remember standing back there against the back wall, seeing my friend Michelle literally look down at her clothes, which were shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt, and she opened up her hands like, look what I've got on. As if to say to herself, I don't belong here. I'm not welcome here. And I think there's a lot of churches that if we're not careful, we get to the, we get to the point where it's, not, it's only okay if you're okay. And one, one thing I think we learned from this first part about Jesus is when people say, well, what's wrong with this person? What's wrong with that person? Jesus says, no, we're going to worry about what God can do through that person than where they actually are right now. And that's kind of the point of that, that beginning part. Uh, and so um, now the, the, second, the flip side of that is it's not okay to be okay with not being okay. Did you catch that? Some of you need caffeine to be able to follow that. It's not okay to be okay with not being okay. That you can come in through these doors and you are welcome here no matter what crap is in your life. Like this dude that was born blind and wanted to figure out, so why has he got all the sin in his life? Who did all the problems? Jesus said, no, he's okay with me. But Jesus healed that person, and he wants you to heal and to learn and to grow and to mature to be more like him every day. That's why this church is called Restore in the first place, that it's restoring people's lives, not staying where they are, but moving forward in their faith journey. And so at this church, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to be okay with not being okay. And somehow I said that properly without screwing that up. All right, so that's the first spiritual lesson that uh, I think that we can uh, gain from this uh, passage. There's a great uh, scripture that the, the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's find that, that kind of describes this, this idea. He says, we have this treasure, which is this mystery of God working in our life, in jars of clay. Other passages say clay pots to show us that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That what happens in our life uh, God does things through real people with cracked pots, is the, is the jars of clay, things that are breakable, to show that it's, it, it happens because of what God does, not because of what we do. And so it's okay if you're not okay. God does things with cracked pots all the time. And, uh, and so that, that's the, f- the first lesson we learned. Second lesson that I want to highlight today, the three sermons I know that I've got in my back pocket, uh, I know how long they are. I don't have any idea how long this one is, so... Uh, when you all start going to sleep, I'll quit. Uh, that's, or I shouldn't tempt you. Uh, so number, here's the second one. Sometimes early on, God working your life feels more like spit and dirt. I think that's an important lesson we got to learn here. Sometimes, especially early on in your faith journey, God working in your life feels, we think that it's got to be all wonderful when we come to faith. It's going to be all lollipops and lucky charms. You know, and God's going to work in our lives, and everything's going to be wonderful. And I think this story, when you read the scriptures, you realize uh, that coming to faith does not make life easy. It just gives you God walking alongside of you through the difficulties in life. And so we can't come to we can't get to this idea where we think it's just going to be all wonderful uh, when it, when it's coming to, when you come to faith. 
And that's an important uh, lesson to learn, that, that this guy's healed by Jesus. And you would think if we wrote the story about God in the flesh walking down this, that God, Jesus would put his arms up and he'd say all this big, wonderful stuff, and everybody would be really impressed by his big speech. And instead, Jesus, you know, when I was growing up, we'd say hock a right? Jesus hocks a loogie, spit on the dirt ground, and then he gets the, the, the spit and he makes mud out of it, and he puts it on the guy's eyes. That's not the way we would write the story, but it's what Jesus chose to do. And I think there's a lesson that when we are being healed by God in whatever needs to be changed in our lives, lots of times it doesn't look like what we think it's going to look like. But the result is is what we're looking for. And so uh, there's a, a there's a story that, that I love, it, just actually one little page in a story. One of After I got a little older and, and grew up from Go Dog Go, did anybody else in here love Go Dog Go, by the way? Yeah, it's like, I like Go Dog Go. So there's a lot of good people in here. So I grew up a little bit, and I remember very clearly, uh, we, my dad was military, so we moved around every two years. So I can remember I was in fifth grade uh, when I got for Christmas the Chronicles of Narnia written by the great Christian author C.S. Lewis. And I remember very clearly, as a, because in fifth grade I know what house we lived in, and I can remember thinking, thanks, Mom, that's what I really wanted is a bunch of books for Christmas. That's worse than getting socks and underwear for Christmas, right? And so, she, and so later that summer, when I was on my way into sixth grade, I was so bored because we didn't have electronics back in those days. We actually got Pong that summer uh, for, for, the, uh, for cr- Christmas that we played Pong. And so I actually read the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody in this room read the Chronicles of Narnia? Many of you have. It's written by C.S. Lewis, who's this British dude um, who came to faith trying to prove Christianity wrong. He wanted to just settle it once and for all that all of his Christian friends were wacko. And so he said, I'm going to investigate Christianity and just prove them all wrong. And he came to faith and believed in Jesus as a result of that. And so he wrote some really significant Christian literature about the essence of faith for adults. But he's most well known for these, these books, these six, seven little books called the Chronicles of Narnia, the, first, the second of which is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, but my favorite is this book. It's the third book in the series. I've got a picture of it here, The Voyage of the Don Treader, which was this uh, boat, uh, the Don Treader's name of the boat that they is on it. It also was made into a movie. And, uh, and rather than the four brothers, the two brothers and two sisters that were the main character of this movie, in this one, it's this Eustace, who's their cousin. And Eustace is what's described as, he's described as a rotten boy. That's kind of how, and I'm trying to find my notes here. Here we, here we go. He's a rotten boy. And, there, and there's this one little page in this story that uh, in this whole thing, there's these imagery of spiritual realities that C.S. Lewis tried to describe for kids uh, so they can understand what Jesus is like. And so there's this one s- story about uh, that's a powerful image of healing and restoration. And the scene starts with Eustace, this rotten boy, and he has come into the possession of this great treasure and a great fortune. And he is lying there on the ground imagining what life and comf- how comfortable life's going to be with all this stuff that, it, that he's got. And he falls asleep uh, lying on all this treasure. And when he wakes up, Eustace is no longer a boy, but he is a dragon the outward manifestation of his selfishness and greed. And while he was still a boy, before he fell asleep, he had pulled, put a gold bracelet from on the treasure on his arm. And it's now const- his little human arm, but now that he's this big dragon, it is constricting his arm, and the pain of this, this, uh, this bracelet is just is killing him. It's piercing him. 
And even worse, the physical pain uh, of the, the bracelet on his arm is coupled with the fact that he figures out that he's now going to be separate from the world relationally because no humans are ever going to hang out with a dragon. And so he's going to be a lonely uh, dragon in pain the rest of his life. And so he starts crying these big dragon, wet, steamy, hot tears uh, from his eyes. And then Aslan the lion, who is the archetype of Jesus, shows up and leads the dragon, the dragon Eustace to a well in a garden. And Eustace looks at the well and knows that if he could just get into the water, it would soothe his arm that's in such pain. But Aslan says that to do so, he would have to get undressed first, which confused Eustace because as a dragon, he doesn't have any clothes on. And, uh, but then he remembers that, he's a, that as a dragon, uh, he could shed his skin like snakes. And so with his new dragon claws, uh, he begins to tear at his skin. And he peels off one layer only to discover that there's another nasty, scaly, rough layer underneath. And then another, and then another. And after three layers, he realizes that in vain, he's never going to get rid of his pain or shed his nasty skin. Then Aslan says, you're going to have to let me undress you. And Eustace was so desperate that even his fear of Aslan claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on the ground. And here's the way C.S. Lewis describes in Eustace's voice uh, how he felt. Eustace said, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it uh, was just the pleasure of feeling the old stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby-looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft, as, as soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like it m very much because I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the well, into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. I love that story because it's a picture of exactly this idea that uh, when God does a healing work in our life, lots of times it's one of the most painful things that will ever happen. But you're willing to go through the pain because you know that when you get released of that nasty old part of yourself, you're going to be fresh and clean and tender again. And the lesson that we learn uh, from that Jesus putting spit on the ground is a lot of time when God works in our lives, uh, we think it's going to be all wonderful, and actually it's, it's different. It's clickbait, isn't it? It's, we think it's going to be wonderful, and it's not, but it's God working through that that changes our lives into us being exactly the people that he wants us to be. There's a, another scripture uh, in uh, another biography of the life of Jesus where Jesus would say, anyone who should come after me, he's got to deny himself and to take up his cross daily. That we've got to bear the cross every single day of being a Christ follower. It's not easy. It's not simple. In America, we get a lot of luxuries that, being, uh, that there's not a whole lot of persecution uh, for our faith compared to other countries. 
But at the same time, it's not easy to be a Christ follower. And if we get trapped in the idea that everything's going to be wonderful, we're missing the point of coming to faith in the first place because it's what God does through all that difficulty that makes us who we need to be in the first place. Here's the final point real quick, and that is there's a surprising simple power to your story. You know, they, they, through this whole story, they ask this guy, so, so tell us about Jesus. And he doesn't know about Jesus. He just met him. And he's not, a, he's not a theologian like these guys, so he can't speak from the Old Testament. He says, here's one thing I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. And there's a lot of power to that story. And there's another passage in the Scripture that I think kind of describes the power of your simple story. And it's from another biography of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. And maybe you've heard uh, the story about that. He lives in the tombs. Uh, he's cutting himself with, with rocks. It says he's naked and bloody. And they tried to, there was nobody that could tie him down. They would break all the chains that we'd put around the hands and his feet. He would scream at night. I mean, he's just a wild dude. And Jesus comes with his disciples on this, on this boat, comes up to him. The, the demons uh, scream out to Jesus, Jesus, what are you going to do with us? Please don't kill us. And they, they ask for permission to go into this uh, herd of, of swine, of pigs, which Jesus allows them to do. And the pigs jump off the cliff and all 2,000 of them die. And, uh, and a lot of us know that part of the story. But there's a small part of the story that I, I think is very interesting. Because at the end of the story, the dude is then in his right mind. And uh, where's my scriptures here? Here we go. Mark chapter 5, verse 18. As Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, now in his right mind, begged to go with Jesus. Would you think Jesus would say, all right, come on? But Jesus didn't let him go. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the, in, the, in the Decapolis, the towns around there, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And so Jesus says, no, you can't, you can't come with me. You just need to stay home and tell people what happened in your life. I think that's interesting because the people there didn't like Jesus. Strangely enough, after Jesus had done this, they were more worried about the pigs than this dude. We can see that in the previous paragraph. It says, those tending the sheep, the pigs, the sheep, the pigs ran off and reported in town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those that had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, told about the pigs as well. Here's the reception Jesus got. They the people began to plead with him and beg him to leave their region. Isn't that weird? So the reception Jesus gets is they said, please leave. Uh, and, uh, and so what's fascinating to me is if you look ahead one chapter, at the end of the next chapter. So Jesus leaves uh, and doesn't let the demon-possessed man come with him. And, it, and uh, Jesus leaves. Nobody wants him there. And so Jesus does several things in the next chapter. It's uh, several months. And Jesus comes back to the region. At the end of the next chapter, in verse 6, in chapter 6, the Bible records, when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, back where they were uh, at the beginning of the last chapter, and they anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus, and they ran throughout the whole region and carried sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, in the villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them touch him, even the edge of his cloak. Isn't that fascinating that at the end of the last chapter, they said, get out of here. And at the end of the next chapter, they, they, they begged him to stay. And my question is, why the difference? What, what was the difference? The difference was one guy who told his story. That's the only difference. There was one guy that said, I met Jesus 
and this is what happened to me. And that's what we see from this guy in John chapter 9, the man born blind, is he said, I don't know this much about Jesus. I don't know the biblical, the spiritual answers. But one thing I do know, I once was blind, but now I see. And that's how we're going to kind of conclude this morning is on, there's, there's uh, pins and these cards on your, on your chairs there. And I'd really like to be for you the, kind of the beginning part of your story. The power of you telling your story, even if you don't know exactly who Jesus is or all the spiritual theological answers, you can say, I once was this, but now I'm this. And what's that going to look like in your story? It might be very simple. In your story, you might say, I once was selfish, but now I'm selfless. I once was addicted, but now I'm free. I once was self-absorbed but now I'm other-oriented. I once was promiscuous, but now I'm faithful. I once was a liar, but now I'm honest. I once was timid, but now I'm courageous. I once was a gossip, but now I'm an encourager. Because I met Jesus, I once was this, but now I'm this. And I'd like for you to take a card, and as we take communion, we're going to meet Jesus like we do every single week at communion, and you can say, because I met Jesus... I once was this, but now I'm that. There is power in your simple story. Just like this, the story in John chapter 9, the story in Mark chapter 5, one person telling their story makes all the difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church that's full of people where it's just okay to not, it's okay to not be okay. That we come into this room with mistakes and regrets, with things that we wish in our life we could do over, character flaws that have not yet been corrected. And it's okay to come in because you welcome us right where we are. But as we are in here today, we know it's not okay to be okay with that, that we need to grow and mature and become more like your son Jesus. And so all of us have a very simple story to tell that we'd like to go just hang out with Christian people all the time, but Jesus might even tell us, no, you go back home and you tell the people what Jesus has done for you. I once was this, but now I'm this. Father, we're thankful that Jesus changes our lives in a way that even the neighbors, our coworkers, and our family members can see. So we want him to change our life even today. And we pray in his name. Amen.